Hi everyone, welcome to the Working Class Heroes Podcast. I'm your host, Lupita Romero, and this is episode one. In 1984, I joined the Air Force and went through basic training. And my basic training photo, I had given to Douglas. As soon as I had left basic, I, I sent him a 5 by 7 copy of my photo. He had kept it with him uh, and had it displayed on a fireplace mantelpiece all this time. There weren't too many other photos that we that either of us had had of each other but that was one that Douglas felt important to uh, to, to have with him. During that uh, last week of spending time with him, packing his home, amongst our conversations, after telling him it's not too late, I, I says, listen, Doug, I says, you're going to go through this experience, but I don't want you to do it alone. I want you to have me with you. During the process of packing the fireplace, where he kept other, a few other photos of family members. I had packed those photos up in a box and left him just the one. And I said, this one, I want you to keep it with you so that you know you're not alone, that I'm, that I'm there with you and I'll always be with you. He did. That was George Shifter talking about his brother, Douglas. Douglas Shifter was a longtime taxi driver who wrote about the dire situation that the industry found itself in for years. He had a regular column in one of the taxi industry newspapers, the Black Car News. He committed suicide early Monday morning, February 5th, right in front of City Hall. Douglas Shifter was the first recorded casualty in what many consider a war backed by Wall Street investors and mainly led by app companies like Uber and Lyft. It's a war over who will own the New York taxi industry. More than 100,000 taxi drivers are now caught in the crossfire. A few of these drivers have made the ultimate sacrifice. He took all of his possessions and a box of Ziploc bags and the shotgun. He got dressed up in custom-tailored shirt and pants and his best shoes and took the shotgun, box of shells, his tablet, driver's license, ID card, and some money, and my picture. Drove up to City Hall with everything in Ziploc bags except for the shotgun and the shells. He he proceeded to clear off the top of his head. Just drove up and did it. But he was not alone. He knew I was there with him. He knows I'm still there with him. I miss him. This story is part one in a series dedicated to stepping into the front lines of this struggle, reporting on how this war began and why it's gone for so long. In June, four months after Douglas Shifter committed suicide, drivers are holding a vigil on the Upper East Side for the fifth driver to now commit suicide. Carlos Perez and Julian Guerrero are reporting back. I had come across news of the vigil while doing some research on the New York taxi crisis underway in New York City. 
The New York Taxi Workers Alliance was calling a vigil to honor Kenny Chow, whose body had been found the day before under the Brooklyn Bridge. When Carlos and I arrived to 86th Street and East End Avenue, we found a small grouping of people who were waiting for the vigil to start. These folks had gathered only a few feet away from where Kenny's yellow cab had been found. You could tell there was a tragedy unfolding, just looking at the people and how they spoke and carried themselves. Many of them had actually brought flowers with them. I remember it was an ugly day. The skies were gray and it had been raining all morning. When we got there, we made our way to the end of the park where the mourners had gathered and where they had made a, a small altar with flowers to remember Kenny and pay their respects. Just a few feet from where this spontaneous altar had been created for Kenny Chow was the railing, and over this railing was the East River. And if you looked down at the East River, you would see the waters churning and rushing by. It's hard to imagine what was going through Kenny's mind before he jumped. Eventually, a woman made herself to the front of the altar and addressed a crowd, and this um, is what she said. It's really hard to gather words in a moment like this. Um, we just, we came here to the site where we believe that Brother Kenny Chow um, would have taken his last breath on May 11th. And, you know, just, we just, we want to pray for his eternal peace. We want to honor his memory. We want to thank him for his years of service to the city of New York. And we want his family to know that Kenny will never be forgotten, that he has a driver family of 100,000 men and women who know exactly what he was going through, who shared the streets with him, who shared the struggle, and today we share the sorrow of his family. Um, this is now the fifth funeral of a driver who has committed suicide in five months. and. Um, it's really hard to muster the words to describe the equal level of sorrow and rage that we feel. I mean, it's just, there are men and women who work so hard to make their ends meet on a daily basis. And all they're seeing every single day is, a, is deeper and deeper poverty. And today we mourn and we pay respect to a life that's been lost too soon. And we say to the universe to protect Mrs. Chow and her daughter and the nine brothers and sisters of Kenny Chow who loved him throughout his life and stood by him through his darkest hours. And we just want to thank them for the courage that the Chow family has showed that they have taken their personal grief and brought it to the public so that the plight of Kenny's fellow drivers could be heard. That was Bayravi Desai, the executive director of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, and this wasn't their first vigil for a taxi driver. As Bayravi said, Kenny Chow was the fifth driver in just about as many months to have committed suicide. For what it's worth, Kenny was a medallion owner, but a taxi driver who had been driving a yellow cab for a long time. He's what you would call an owner driver, but we'll get back to that later. While we were doing research for this story, there had been a sixth driver who had committed suicide. His name was Abdul Saleh. New York City taxi drivers have been struggling since 2011. It's always been hard to make a living as a taxi driver. 
But in 2011, it became significantly worse. That's because Uber entered the New York City taxi industry and has made things harder than ever. Since 2011, the streets have become flooded with drivers hired by Uber and Lyft. There's double the number of taxi drivers than in 2011 and almost triple the number of vehicles on the road now. But the number of people looking for a cab hasn't kept up with that growth. Taxi drivers have been suffering for years without passengers noticing anything. But for those who have seen it up close. The silence is deafening. We are two blocks away from Gracie Mansion. Where's our mayor? Kenny Chow came and he took his last breath two blocks away from the home of the mayor of the city of New York. Douglas Shifter took his last breath one block away from the place where the mayor and the city council work. This should tell the city of New York something. Even though the New York Taxi Workers Alliance represents thousands of drivers, we're talking about almost 20,000 drivers, their voice gets drowned out easily by Uber and Lyft. As a matter of fact, Uber and Lyft have spent more money than Amazon, Microsoft, and Walmart combined to get their message heard. My name is Mir. My name is Gregor. My name is Balavinder Singh. My name is Juan, and I'm an Uber partner. Yellow taxi is very difficult for me. The effort, the energy, the hassle. Sitting in a car like 12 hours, 10 hours. The amount of time that you put in. I don't want that anymore. It's significant compared to Uber. I'm never going back to the yellow taxi. I wouldn't be living the life I'm living right now if it wasn't for Uber. You make more money, you're not hustling for the money. You go online, you got to feel like this, one, two, three. It's no special. When I want to work, I can do it. Being a part of Uber, to move from the bottom of the ladder to the top of the ladder in no time. It's like my own business. Easy, convenient, and everybody likes it. I pick up a lot of people from all over the world. They say, we love Uber, I say, I love Uber too. Ami Gorbito Uber Along with the commercials that we just heard, Uber has spent millions of dollars lobbying state politicians and city council members to get what they want. Each of their talking points tends to play on the economic anxieties that working people have been facing for a long time, but especially since the 2008 economic crisis. I was pretty much just struggling to make ends meet. In and out of work, I couldn't pay my mortgage. I was having a lot of difficulty. When I finally came to Uber, it was probably the best thing that's happened in my life. I make more money and I spend more time with my family. It's been a blessing. My car is my office and Uber is my partner. We spoke with two part-time Uber drivers Grace and Mike Ortiz, who actually have full-time jobs already. But they do Uber part-time to pay for daycare for their child. Day school takes the burden off many working families to finding a babysitter or a grandparent or an aunt and uncle who can care for their children. And in this day school environment, their daughter gets a chance to socialize with other children and gets the attention she needs for her development by paid professionals. These are opportunities that aren't guaranteed to working families as they have to often negotiate these things with other financial demands or priorities. So for the Ortiz family, working part-time with Uber allows them to make that difference. Rent's very expensive. Um, We have two daughters. Um, One is 18 years old. She's a full-time college student. And then we have a two-year-old who is a full-time daycare student, I guess. And... um, Alone, for Amber, it's $200 a week. So working Uber, for us, 
is how we pay for her childcare. We both make around 39,000, yeah, 39 plus, and with rent and credit card bills and just expenses, we it doesn't cut the, it doesn't cut it. So we need this extra income. For Mike, the issues go beyond just economic concerns. Well, I have a young daughter, so I need the extra money to pay for daycare. Daycare is expensive, especially in New York City. So what I started doing, I started working at a catering hall. In the catering hall, I was there from 8 a.m. to 1 a.m., making $11 an hour. And they got to a point, I was doing that for about eight months, but it got to a point where I'm only sleeping five hours a weekend, the entire weekend. Because with being in the catering is, it's demanding. Like, say, for example, if a party starts at 11, you have to be there around 8, right? And that party's not going to end for five hours. And a lot of times, they'll have you do a double shift, you know? So you'll, that party, end up, uh, say it ends at 4, next party's going to start at 6, you got to start ready for the next party. And that party may not end till like, 12. So by the time you get home, everybody's already sleeping at home. When I would wake up on Saturday morning, my daughter's sleeping. I go home, my daughter's sleeping. I wake up the next day to go to work, my daughter's sleeping. So the whole weekends I was spending away from her. And the only time I got to see her awake is through FaceTime. And that took a toll. At that point, you're only making what? You're doing seven hour shifts, $77 an hour, $77 a, sh- a party. You know, to get up again, to go to my normal day, my normal job on Monday morning. Trying to set up your license with the Taxi and Limousine Commission can be kind of hard and difficult. They have a number of regulations that one has to meet before you're able to drive legally on the streets. You have to go online, you have to send your driver's license, you fill out a whole application, name, date of birth, social, so forth, so forth, like any application you would do when you find for a job. And you have to send your driver's license, your registration, your insurance card, and then do a background check. And then they'll let you know, then, then they get back to you if you got approved. And then um, it, it normally takes between two weeks to a month, depending on how many requests they're getting. I got mine back in like two weeks. Dealing with garage bosses who own the fleets and who play games with each driver makes it even more difficult. So for Uber being able to streamline the registration process makes it that much more attractive to people who work full-time jobs and don't want to deal with all the hassle. This matters because a significant amount of Uber and Lyft drivers are actually part-time drivers who already work a full-time job or even multiple part-time jobs. So if you're strapped for cash, being able to sign up for Uber and drive with your own car and no boss breathing down your neck, some of the promises Uber and Lyft make to drivers are true in this regard. But the more we spoke with the Ortiz family, the more it seemed that Uber fit their specific lifestyle and their needs. Mike drove passengers around for Uber a lot more in the beginning, but now he spends most of his time delivering food through Uber Eats because, as Mike says, I can take my family with me. So I'm still spending time with Amber or something like that. Like what we'll do is we'll, we'll take the whole family. I'll take my wife and my daughter. We'll go to the park. You know, we hang on the park. We go for, we'll do, do like two, three hours in Uber. We stop. We go for dinner. I'm still with the family. Go for dinner, spend time with the family, a place I'm with her. We hang out on the park again. And ride around for another two hours. Just I'm still spending time with her as I'm working. So that's that's one of the things I really liked about just staying with Eats. For Mike, he doesn't have to choose between working and spending time with his family. While all that sounds very convenient for the full-time worker looking for a little bit of extra cash on the side, this kind of sounds like neoliberal hell. I mean, the idea that you have to work a second or a third job or work more than 40 hours 
or have to bring your family to work just so you can spend time with them is something that we've taken for granted. But people are going to do what they can and take advantage of every opportunity to make that little bit of extra money if it means putting their kids through childcare or providing other opportunities for their families. This app-based gig industry has streamlined a lot of these opportunities. So you hear this a lot from people who drive part-time for Uber. They say they make some good money, but the story seems different for everyone. Right. That's because a lot of these drivers are driving in the outer boroughs, far from the city center where the majority of drivers, full-time drivers, are actually plugging away day in and day out. So Mike doesn't have to compete as much with other drivers for fares. And driving a yellow cab or an Uber car in Manhattan, though, it comes with its own particularities. In New York in 2017, we're facing our worst transportation crisis in decades. Subway breakdowns are a common occurrence. Subway reliability is way down. And we're shedding bus riders at an alarming and accelerating pace. Traffic is slowing down. Some of that is so many people trying to use the streets. But the other big factor that we have is that if you look at Uber and Lyft and Via, they're adding 20 to 25,000 more vehicles to city streets every year. That means we've added over 600 million miles of motor vehicle traffic in New York City over the last three years. We spoke to a couple of drivers who actually drive in the city center where traffic and competition over fares is the worst. One of the drivers we spoke to was Francis, a full-time Uber driver who drives mainly in Manhattan. And this is what he had to say. I don't know how to explain this. When you are making money, be able to pay your rent, be able to, you know, take care of your bills, whatever you get. But now you move from that stage to a stage where you are going home, $30 for it, oh shit, 12 hours. How much does that come down to? It comes down to around $2.50 per hour. Far, far below minimum wage. Taxi drivers themselves have to take on all the risk of driving, so they have to cover the cost of gas, car maintenance, and traffic fines. And all of this provide the service to the public. So when there's gridlock and just way too many taxi drivers on the road, more and more of their time is spent cruising around looking for fares. As a result, many drivers are working much longer shifts to justify that effort. The best thing is to do double. So that way I can get, do the rush hours complete and make money. And after that, everything goes down. But the risk there, because I'm tired out, when I notice that my attention and everything have been reduced, I'll look for a corner and park and start sleeping, you know, to go recover. Sometimes I'm made to move, but that is the way it works out for us now. So just to make something reasonable, to try to go home with, you know, for 24 hours, you're going home with the... how much does it come per hour? You might think I'm making it up. I have the slips right here. I can show you. Just so that the audience is aware, we also got a chance to speak to Jose, which is Julian's dad, who's been driving a yellow cab for over 25 years. It's been very difficult. As I said to you, I'm losing close to $40, $50 a day. That's $200 to $1,000, $800 to $1,000 a month. That's a lot of money. 
that you lose. And you work, it doesn't mean that you're working less. You're working just as much, even more. Even some drivers stay longer. Some drivers would go home at uh, at uh, 1 o'clock in the morning. Now you see them working until 3. I remember you used to make uh, Friday and a Saturday night uh, 10 years ago, $230, $260 a day for yourself. Now you, uh, now you struggle to make $100. Now there is, of course, there is more work on Saturday and Friday and Saturday. But absolutely every application cab is out there in the streets. The traffic is horrendous. The frustration can be heard on both drivers' voices. And this is frustration on top of generally difficult working conditions. Right, working conditions so hostile to drivers that it would lead them, or some of them, to commit suicide. And these hostile work conditions are practically facilitated by the Taxi and Limousine Commission, or also known as a TLC. They, alongside garage owners who own whole fleets of taxi medallions and medallion brokers who are playing with taxi drivers and medallion owners, they all get a piece of this, as well as the New York Police Department. The New York City taxi industry is a pretty complicated system that can sometimes mask the ways in which drivers are being exploited. Yellow cab drivers and the driver system is pretty much rooted to the taxi medallions. But it's a little complicated, so let's try to explain this a little bit. The New York City government issues medallions in an attempt to regulate the taxi industry. These medallions are supposed to give the drivers who own them the sole right to pick up passengers in the city. But these medallions are also property in their own right and have acquired a value over time based on the supply and demand of the medallion market, as well as racketeering and other kinds of efforts to shoot up the value for their owners. A small percentage of drivers have their own medallions, and they're known as owner-drivers. Many of these drivers were able to acquire the capital or the credit so that they can invest thousands of dollars into buying a medallion. Since it costs thousands of dollars to get a medallion and maintain it, the idea is to have the car on the road making as much money as possible at any given time. That's why the need to recruit friends and family is so great. But the number of owner-drivers who have their own medallion is small compared to the number of medallions owned by large fleets who run hundreds of taxis to make a profit. For drivers who don't own their own medallion, they're known as lease drivers, and they show up to these large garages where, like we said, there are hundreds of taxis waiting to be leased out to these drivers. They're there hoping that the garage owner will lease out their car that day. But a lot of this relationship hinges on some sort of favoritism or whatever deals that the lease driver can cut with the garage. When fleet bosses make these deals with drivers, they want to shift as much of the risks and costs over to the drivers. By risk, I mean the risk that anyone takes on when they try to make some money. In most places where you work, you're paid a set wage for a set schedule. When a taxi driver goes to a fleet boss, they're not guaranteed any wage. Instead, there's a set of costs and fees that they must pay that's part of the lease. Anything more than the cost of the fees that go to the lease bosses, the driver gets to keep. So whether or not it's a good day or a bad day, 
Whether their car breaks down or not, whether they get fined by the NYPD or not, the driver still has to make sure that the garage gets the money that they want. Drivers also have to pay for the gas and make sure to give the car back with a full tank. This is how Muhammad Ali, who's been driving a yellow cab for about 20 years as a lease driver, explains what it means to lease from the garages and why some drivers stick to this type of taxi work. 12-hour shift. All pressures, first six hours you just work for the fleet owners and medallion owners and then it's just uncertainty when the other six hours you just, when you are about to make your money, is dead hours, this and that. So many things like the biggest problem in this uh, industry is for the yellow cab driver, which I think like for me was always to finding the bathroom and legal parking on the same time. and. The whole the medallion thing is medallion like they call it medallion 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 is this ugly plastic thing they smeared on the dashboard and they just like inflated like all artificial inflation of this price like because the mobs jumped in and they raised from medallion price from 300,000 all the way to 1.1 million dollar and all this nonsense was going on it's never like my mind never accepted that mathematic because everybody was because since I had told you like I'm driving for 21 years so all my family my friends and many many friends like you're stupid you're stupid why don't you buy your own medallion you so like it don't make any sense to me with the, any mathematics or conclusion or like you know any just uh, don't make any sense to me to buy a medallion and own the medallion and any cops can stop you and your medallion gone any accident happen and your medallion is gone all the risk factor and all this math- mathematics, like $5,000 a month, just you paying the lease on medallion. So it never like, you know, I said like, no, I will never like put this uh, slavery chains on, around my neck or shackles or cuffs. I want to be like independent and I want to be free. Plus like I always have a hope like there will be another day. The medallion brokers facilitate a relationship between drivers and those who own the medallions. So as a third party, the broker's goal is to get as much money out of this relationship with as little investment on their part as possible. And they do this with high interest rates. Now, what would push a driver to cut a deal with a medallion broker? Really, it's the bad experience that they have with big garages and fleet owners who screw them over constantly. The idea that you can have greater control over your working conditions and not deal with the garage boss is quite attractive. As a third party, these brokers have no real care or interest for the driver or the medallion owner long term. And because they're a third party, they control all the communication between these two groups and use it to their advantage. So, for example, they push drivers into deals to buy a new car while they rent the medallion for a five-year plan, let's say. For a while, the driver pays for the rental of the medallion and the new car at the same time. The driver figures that for three years, they'll pay both of these costs, but by the end of year three, they'll finish the car payments. So from that point on, they reason they'll be keeping more of the money they make for themselves. Those last two years of profit is what keeps these drivers going through three years of hard driving. And this is exactly the moment when brokers have been known to jump in. They take away the medallion from the drivers and they'll claim that the medallion owner wants the medallion back and will unilaterally break the deal with the driver. Brokers then sell the three-year-old car back to a used car dealership for a couple thousand dollars. So 
that's all profit, no risk. Brokers take advantage of the fact that they're working with a largely immigrant labor force who know little about laws and who may struggle with forms of communication that the brokers use, and who are often or perhaps may be prone to letting authority figures take the lead in a country where anti-immigrant sentiment is so high. So you're probably thinking, what does the TLC have to say about all of this? In reality, the TLC plays itself as an organization that's trying to manage all the competing interests of the various groups in the taxi industry. However, it tends to privilege those with capital, with influence, and with money. And within the taxi industry, that tends to be the large fleet owners, the garage bosses, and the medallion brokers, if not other medallion owners. TLC commissioners tend to use their position to manage influence and power between the industry and politicians. It's not an untypical thing to see because we commonly see in Congress there is a revolving door between regulatory bodies like the TLC and the industries they're supposed to be regulating. Now the TLC will claim that they have a court system to allow due process for drivers, but this is what Francis had to say about the TLC court system. I'll give you one, one example. You have a case, we have a case in TLC court. Then we go to the court. They will give us a very nice offer so as not to challenge. Like they will tell you, okay, see this thing is this penalty, penalty for this offense is $100. But if I do not challenge it and pay 150, there will be no point. There will be nothing. You see? Instead of wasting time, you decide, we decide to pay it and move on. Now we pay those fine, based on what TLC told us. Now the same TLC, now the same information is passed to the state. Now we go back to the state, pay the fine and get the point. We've uh, we pleaded guilty right there by pay, uh, accepting TLC offer. Like, like I said, the genie is already out of the bottle. The only thing that can come out of it is that those of us, some of us, we start losing our hack license. It's so easy for us, uh, the TLC, to just suspend and then revoke the license. So that's enough for them use as a, a tool to get rid of us. It's a very it's just like entrapping us for the, the other party to so the state can now once the state gives me the point now TLC can turn around and say okay your DMV record shows you have so and so point. Forgetting they were the one who made me the offer not to challenge, and there will be no point. And you know, we drivers, we cab drivers, we are very particular about the points. In reality, it's a system of double jeopardy for many of the drivers. And likewise, when drivers get burned by brokers or garages, the TLC is slow to respond if they do at all. This system of double jeopardy extends outside of the TLC, with the NYPD fining drivers for the same violations as the TLC. 
and the city makes a lot of money from these fines. New York City Comptroller Scott Stringer stated that parking and motor vehicle violation fines alone brought in more than $550 million. Small amount, right? And that's not counting vehicle camera violation fines, which were almost $100 million. Revenue brought in by TLC fines and settlements plus TLC courts was nearly $22 million in 2016. Taxi drivers complain about these fines and lack of due process constantly. In a setup like this, drivers get shaken down from all sides. When Carlos and I first started reporting on this story, we got the chance to join the New York Taxi Workers Alliance for a meeting that they were having with the staff of City Councilmember Jumani Williams. Meetings with City Council members or their staff tend to be well rehearsed beforehand and it's a time when groups deliver policy proposals and they designate a person to introduce themselves, the group that came with them, and they start off by summarizing the issue in a concise way. Then others from the group jump in and flesh out the issue in more personal ways and how they're being impacted. Carlos and I are sitting in this room trying to stay out of the way while members of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance present their case and put forward the demands that they have developed. About 15 minutes into it, a driver who's sitting next to me all of a sudden cuts in. He starts by saying that he hasn't read the demands in the white binder, but... I don't know what is there in the uh, folder, but, uh, um, you know, I've been driving for this industry for 20 years. I have driven yellow cab, I have driven car service, and now I'm driving with the black car service. What's happening in this industry, that's what I have observed in my 20 years life, working in New York City. It's completely biased system against the taxi drivers. The reason behind is this, all the administration knows that 99% drivers are immigrant in this industry. And city knows very well, everybody's record in there, in the Taxi and Limousine Commission, knows very well who has what, what kind of status they have. And that's why they are abusing them. They are using them by putting new regulations every day. Every day putting new regulations. Tell me, sir, you have driven your car. If your light bulb blows off, what happens? Car pull you over, they give you someone for 24 hours, right? To get it corrected. In tech, I'm driving a taxi. All the streets are with the um, bumps and uh, all big holes are there. If my, t my bulb is blows off, then they give me ticket. It's a mandatory fine of $150. How do I know machinery went wrong? For what reason? It's a mandatory fine of $150. What kind of law is that? That's cool, bro. And then on the other side, they recently said all the taxi... So as this unnamed driver was speaking, I could see his hand under the table shaking. He was speaking truth to power, probably doing it for the first time and speaking more off his direct experience than any studies or research that he's done on his own time. But again, the frustration is all there, and it's very real. Especially now, when we're seeing a growing intensity of anti-immigrant sentiments. For some drivers, like Jose and Ali, there's a feeling of betrayal by the public. We worked, we work hard, we work for 80 years, we've served the people. Um, you know, uh, it's like getting stabbed in the back, really, if you, if you want me to put it in different words. It just shouldn't be. The public always hated the, but they needed us, you know. They, they never wanted us. They just like needed us. So there was like kind of like a very thin balance 
you know because of the need we were there and so they just uh, deal with us but soon <laughs> now when they don't need us they don't want us they never wanted us and now they don't need us so that's what it is the simple reality He's a very hard working, he loves his family. That's all I want to say. We're, we're with you, brother. Yeah, we're with you, brother. I love my brother, please. We're with you. Thank you. I can't imagine the, the courage it takes for a family in grief to come out to the public and share their sorrow. And so just from the depths of my heart, I want to thank the Chow family for their sense of courage and their sense of community. And I want to say to them that we promise you that Brothers Kenny death will not be in vain. Yes. That yes. we will remember and we will carry on his struggle and we will continue until justice is served in his name and in his honor and to the protection of all of his driver brothers and sisters that remain. These families, the Chow family, the Ochisor family, the Shifter family, and the families of all of the other drivers who have committed suicide, they are the working class heroes. And they, along with the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, will not let their deaths be in vain. People are dying. Yes. This is not a war zone. This is a business. This is a job. You should not be dying because you're sinking into poverty and you feel a hopelessness over your future. This is just wrong. And the city has to take action and it has to take the right action and it has to take significant action yes. and it needs yes. to take yes. the action yes. now. Yes. Now. Yes. Now. Yes. now. 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 We want action. We want action. We're out of time for now, but we'll be releasing the next episode in two weeks, when Carlos and Julian will explain why New York City politicians have let Uber and Lyft overwhelm the industry. For more information about this episode, including articles, photos, and full transcripts, please make sure to check out WorkingClassHeroesPodcast.com. This is Lupita Romero, and we'll be back soon. Always in solidarity. Thank you.